Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of March 9th, 2020. We are halfway done with spring training, folks. For the most part, it's been a pretty positive camp for the White Sox. The players who have been hurt early, like Edwin Carnacion and Yasmari Grandel and Gio Gonzalez, well, they're starting to get some game action in. Luis Robert has been awesome. Both Yerman Mercedes and Zach Collins have been hitting well at the plate. And the young pitchers have been impressing. But there is a position battle still ongoing at second base, which we will update on to see who is the projecting, who's projecting to be the starter on opening day between Danny Mendick, Nick Magical, and Lurie Garcia. We'll update that race later in the show. Also later in the show, our best friend, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs, will be joining us to help kick off our 2020 White Sox outfield preview by talking about Luis Robert and how he could single-handedly change the White Sox playoff hopes in a great way in 2020. And Patrick Nolan, Pinoles, will join me later to preview Nomar Mazzara and Aloy Jimenez. Of course, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox at the end of the show. We've got a lot to cover this week, and it all starts with the great news that Yoan Makata is sticking around until 2025 as he signs a new contract extension with the Chicago White Sox. Joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim! You and Greg did another fabulous job filling in for me last week. Yeah, I was joking that, uh, you know, Greg did it the first time and I thought there might be, he might threaten you a little bit, uh, might might cause you to double down and, and never give up another shift. But no, you went right back at it and went on a cruise, which was pretty bold of you. How was that? <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about these two episodes that Greg filled in for me. The first one, I was in China 
<laughs> when the outbreak <laughs> began. And now I just got off the cruise ship. So I spent the weekend in New Orleans. New Orleans, that was my first trip to New Orleans. It was a very fun time. We've never been. It is a very fun time. And I would definitely go back again. And then we did the first ever Disney cruise sailing out of New Orleans and went to Cozumel, Mexico, and then came back. And at the time when I went on the cruise, they didn't take my temperature. They didn't give me a health screening. Sure enough, when our boat got back to port, they have changed the rules. And if you're going to go on a Disney cruise or any cruise this year, uh, they're going to have a health screening for you. They're going to take your temperature. They're going to make sure that you're not at 100 degrees. If you're at 100 degrees, you're not getting on the boat. Uh, If you're coughing or sneezing, you're not getting on the boat. They will refund as far as your trip fully, so you don't have to worry about that, and you're not losing out hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on your vacation. It just sucks that you can't enjoy your vacation because you're a little bit sick, and it may not even be the coronavirus, but nobody's taking that risk. Uh, So, yeah, it was interesting, uh, especially when I hop on the Wi-Fi and find out that another cruise ship outside of San Francisco can't even get to port (laughs) because they have people... That have the coronavirus, but nobody on my ship has been reported that had it. Uh, and I, I guess I'm testing fate, Jim, twice here, uh, having been in China in January and now getting off a cruise ship in March. Maybe you should like tell people where you're going next, just so they they know not to go there like <laughs> two weeks after you do. Louisville, Kentucky is next in late April, as I will... Watch Reed Detmers of the Louisville Cardinals for some 2020 Major League Baseball draft. Louisville, you're on notice. Yeah, Louisville, you are on notice. And then uh, the Charlotte Knights will be in Louisville that same weekend. So I'll catch up on uh, the White Sox AAA prospects. You know, maybe Michael Kopech will be starting one of those games over that weekend. So, yes, Louisville, you are on notice. And Montreal in June, you are also oh, now no. on notice. My second favorite city. <laughs> I am sorry, Jim. I, I'm sorry. Oh, man. But anyway, so I'm on this vacation, and I'm having a good time. I hop on the Wi-Fi, and then I see the breaking news that first, hat tip to James Fox of Future Sox who reported this uh, a week prior, uh, but Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic reported that the White Sox and Yuan Makata did come to agreement on a new contract extension. I have to say this breaking news is a lot better than the last time we went on vacation uh, during February when I was in Barbados and the Manny Machado news broke out. <laughs> Much better breaking news this time while I was on vacation. I'd agree. Uh, but with the, the contract extension, for those that still don't know the details, Yohan uh, Makata gets a $4 million signing bonus, so he'll get that money right away, even though the accounting is going to be split up over the, ne- the next few years. His pay goes from about 637000 that he was scheduled to make in 2020 to $1,000,000. Next year, his salary will be $6 million. 2022, $13 million. 2023, $17 million. That covers his ARB years. 2024 would be his first year free agency. He'll be making $24 million. And then there's a club option in 2025. Either the White Sox will pick up that option and Yohan Mikado will make $25 million, or the White Sox buy out his deal for $5 million. Jim, how do you like this deal for all parties involved? 
I think it's more favorable to the White Sox than it is for Moncada. And I think, yeah, when it comes to these kind of extensions, you think like that's usually the way it goes. But I think this is more, even adjusting for that, I think it's more team favorable than I would expect for somebody who had the year Moncada had. And also with Moncada, you know, he had the $31 million signing bonus when he signed with the Red Sox, uh, which he was no longer allowed. But he had his life-changing payment already. So I figured that, he wouldn't necessarily be under pressure to sign just the first big deal that is offered to him. So I I thought he might rival Alex Bregman's uh, five for a hundred contract, that extension that he signed with the Astros and didn't quite come close. And uh, you know, Bregman I think is better and and set himself up better for uh, a higher pay trajectory just by nailing both of his full seasons uh, of the last two, whereas Mankata had an average flawed one and then a very good one last year. So not quite in the same trajectory, but I still thought he might push it a little bit to get, to get closer to that number. Uh, I guess the good news for him is that he will exceed a hundred million dollars in his twenties, just because if he had the signing bonus and the extension that he's, he's already set for that. So he's got that going for him, but Given, you know, how, you know, Eloy signed for his extension and that was, you know, uh, that was kind of the typical, you know, I would say atypical in terms of he hadn't played a major league game, but typical in, in that it seemed very team favorable as long as he's healthy. And then it went to uh, Luis Robert, who, uh, you know, was, he also signed the pre-major league deal, but then when it, you know, when he looked at the terms of it and given his shorter track record and, and more injuries in his past, it seemed like that was one that actually pushed the White Sox to accept some risk. Now with Mancata, you know, he still has some flaws with the strikeouts and we'll see how healthy he stays to where, you know, he might not quite, you know, max out his potential year over year over year. But I still think it's, uh, you know, he left, he did leave some money on the table and I think the White Sox are happy to lock in that cost certainty. I 100% agree with you. And I want to talk about the money that he left on the table. Because I think this is a great deal for the White Sox. And I think this is a good deal for Yohan Makata. And looking at the average annual value, it's $14 million over the next five years for Yohan Makata. That would rank 12th in Major League Baseball for third baseman. And that's behind Kyle Seager and Evan Longoria. Now, Seager and Longoria, Mm. if you remember, they signed those very team-friendly big contracts years ago, but they're at $16 million average annual value based on his performance. I think Yuan Makata is a top 10 third baseman. And when you look at the projection models for this season and 2021 and 2022 zips, Dakota, they also think Yuan Makata is going to be a top 10 third baseman. So if I was his agent, I would demand Yuan Makata to be paid at an average annual value of a top 10 third baseman. And I would have requested an additional 10 to 15 million more over the next five years. And that would have put Makata at five years, 80 or $85 million with a club option, putting him at six years at a hundred or $105 million. And then ta-da, the White Sox had done a gym. They finally signed a nine figure deal with a player, <laughs> but no, that obviously didn't happen. And that's why I think this is a good deal for you on Makata. And I think the money that he left on the table is somewhere between 10 to $15 million. But as you mentioned, Jim, with his signing bonus, Yuan Makata is going to make a hundred million dollars in his baseball career. So hat tip to you, sir. You're doing very well for yourself. Uh, But that's why I think it's a good deal for him. And the money that's on the table, I think is between 10 to $15 million. So great job to Rick Hahn to be able to, to save that type of money 
for the Chicago White Sox. But again, Yohan Mikata, he's going to make more than $100 million in his baseball career. Yeah, I, I with... Uh... With Mankata and just his reaction to it and the uh, reactions from Tim Anderson and well, even front office, like Rick Hahn's uh, reactions uh, to Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu and such. It, the nice thing is, you know, we can talk about the numbers and, and talk about how it seems, you know, I guess the labor angle where it seems like you know, he's getting un- underpaid and, uh, and, and the White Sox are saving money and we'll see if they reinvest that money. And that's kind of been the tension for a lot of teams, including the White Sox. But the nice thing is, if you can if you can set that aside, uh, it's very nice and refreshing to see all these guys seem to like really playing with each other and, and really like uh, what they're building and uh, like the connection with the fans. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping there will be more fans to connect with. I think <laughs> that's the kind of idea with building this thing is building this kind of movement uh, that's uh, trying to you know, usher in perhaps a White Sox golden age we've been talking about where they make the postseason uh, multiple years in a row and uh, hopefully a World Series somewhere along the lines. But uh, when it comes to just this this idea of uh, this unity thing, the White Sox have gotten, I think, in trouble a little bit before by being so loyal to their own guys that they don't pursue outside improvements enough. But I think this is the kind of thing where if it works, if, if Moncada is a fixture, if Anderson's a fixture, Eloy, Robert, if they all you know, lock into place the way their talent says they should and the way their contract extensions say they should uh, reflect the White Sox belief in them, that uh, this is the kind of loyalty that you know could beget loyalty and maybe convert people from the outside in, you know, because it's player driven and not front office driven. Like uh, I'm thinking of Jerry Reinsdorf's other team where, you know, it's a very, you know, player acquisition is very player driven and there are no players to attract better players. Uh, but if they can just have this, you know, big happy family of, of uh, guys who feel compensated, uh, treated fairly, uh, believed in, uh, I can see that having some advantages down the line if the White Sox are willing to invest in players who, you know, do break that hundred million dollar mark. You've been talking about you're talking around this point, but let's let's do address that point because these extensions that you've mentioned, Jimenez, Robert, Mancada, they also signed players like Yasmani Grandel. And Dallas Keuchel, large deals to the White Sox, but in the grand scheme of baseball, they're not that large of deals. The White Sox should still have the financial means, Jim, to take on another significant contract, whether in trade or free agency. At least that's what I think. Do you agree that Mm -hmm. these extensions need, not should, need to lead to another significant acquisition to make this plan to contend work? Well, I, I guess ideally it wouldn't just because the t- talent on hand would be so awesome that you could just uh, add who you want and it doesn't necessarily need to be the highest paid player. But uh, I think more of the point you're getting at is that when you reset the payroll the way the White Sox have, um, basically tearing it down to the studs and then you you lock in these players who are, I guess, most likely to make bank in the open market. You delay their making bank by a couple of years and you sign them for under their market value, uh, even when it comes to arbitration. Like if Yohan Mankata clicks, his arbitration number should well outpace what the White Sox are paying him for those years. So you, you set that up, you clear the payroll, you get the bad contracts out the books, you lock in only young players and maybe Yasmani Grandal. Keuchel is there for three years, but by the time the White Sox you know, have a payroll reckoning, he'll be off the books. 
this all sets up to add a contract that the White Sox have never added before. Maybe Zach Wheeler was uh, going to be their first uh, taste of that, but he didn't want to sign with the White Sox. He wanted to stay local to Philly, and uh, the White Sox didn't really want to go that much more above Philadelphia's offer to make it work. But, you know, maybe we'd be having a different discussion a little bit if they did land Wheeler, uh, and that was the, uh, the, the, the pace setter of all White Sox free agent four ways, but since they didn't close the deal, we can't really say, you know, it's like saying they offered $250 million to Manny Machado. Yeah, they did offer a lot, but it wasn't nearly enough to get it done. So I think when it comes to this whole idea of like, how much are the White Sox indeed willing to spend? They actually have to spend the money before we say that. Um, for, you know, years going forward, especially like say Mookie Betts, if he hits free agency in full working order. George Springer, I'd say maybe a slightly lesser degree because he's not quite the same player. And also we'll see how this, uh, uh, you know, the, the Astros cheating scheme uh, ultimately unfolds and how players, uh, you know, what kind of years they have in the wake of it. But, you know, if he hits the free agent market and the White Sox need a right fielder and he's everything they need, this that's kind of the reason why you reset the payroll. I mean, the White Sox, we've talked about this before, this uh, offseason they had with Keigel and Grandal and such, they could fit this offseason to a lot of previous offseasons, the kind of spending they did. So you know, it's, it's, you, you don't tear down the roster to accommodate that. You, you tear it down to accommodate the major piece. And you know, hopefully the White Sox don't need uh, you know, like a Mookie Betts type in order to uh, upend the division and, and be on a projectable pace the, you know, to compete with the Twins. You're not counting on surprises in order to topple them. Uh, that's, I think, the goal. So I think, uh, you know, maybe it's Betts, maybe it's uh, Springer, maybe it's somebody else. But I think, you know, that's what it's missing just in terms of just... it. it the purpose of clearing the payroll is to create that opportunity. If the White Sox don't capitalize on that, then, you know, it will be... It will feel like they missed something. Keep this in mind, listeners. When we preview the White Sox right field and talk about Nomar Mazzara with Pinos later in the show because if they want to make a significant acquisition after this season, as Jim mentioned, he he already mentioned Wookie Betts and George Springer, that's kind of I look how I look at this. If you're going to sign these hopefully young superstars to these contracts and over the next three years you're saving quite a bit of money compared to the value that they are giving you, that's where I see, like, in the next three years, the White Sox should take those financial risks because uh, they have set themselves up to be able to still add a significant financial piece, whether that's somebody like Mookie Betts next year or maybe someone in July during the trade deadline if they're in contention and there's somebody out there that's a high salary that another team is looking to dump because they want to enter rebuild mode. That salary should not scare the White Sox away. That's the point that I'm making after you sign these extensions with Jimenez, Robert, and Mikata, and you have them all the way up to 2025 now and beyond. And over the next three years, they are still going to be very cheap for you. The White Sox need to take advantage of that over the next three years and continue to add players on the caliber of Yasmani Grandel to give them an, but a better opportunity, not just to win the division, Jim, but to do some serious damage in the postseason, if that is the ultimate goal for the White Sox. Now, not to brag, but I am two for two with contract extensions this offseason, Jim, into spring training with Luis Robert and Yohan Makata. There's still a couple weeks left 
in spring training camp, and I'm tempted to make a third contract extension prediction before opening day. Do you think I should ride the hot hand or be glad I got lucky twice? Follow your heart. And my heart says, let's keep rolling. So let's (laughs) talk about a possible extension with, I think, the next player in line. We can't forget about Aaron Bummer, who also got his contract extension this offseason, too. But I did not make that prediction. But it is a pitcher, and that's Lucas Giolito. I think Giolito is next in line if the White Sox want to sign a contract extension and reward him for how well he performed last year and to lock him up in a deal now that make it worthwhile for him to sign away his arbitration years and get one of one of his one or two first free agent years because what we saw in free agency uh, this season is that starting pitchers get paid. And I think Lucas Giolito, as far as his career path, is going to be right at or better than Zach Wheeler. And again, Zach Wheeler got five years, $118 million. So my thought process is, Jim, if you don't get an extension done now with him, you may run the risk that if he duplicates his 2019 season in 2020 and he finishes in the top five in the American League Cy Young, he may have zero interest in talking a contract extension because for his personal value, he can wait three more years and test free agency which now everyone in Major League Baseball has seen, he can make some serious bank because he's a starting pitcher and he's a quality starting pitcher in the open market. Does that line of thinking make sense that the timing of extension probably should happen within the, within the next two weeks? It does. I think uh, when you look at the service time, there's, you know, he's between two and three years, which is timing a lot of it gets done, like say like you know Aaron Nola and Luis Severino and Blake Snell, uh, all signed within this range before they entered their their third uh, full season, you know, getting you know, their last pre-arb year. So it lines up there. And also, I think it's a little bit weird if you are a Giolito, just because when you see Jimenez and Robert and uh, and Mancada and you know Aaron Bummer to a lesser extent, just because relievers are different. But you're know, seeing these fixtures lined up. Uh, you know, these th- these guys who were acquired by the White Sox by trading proven major leaguers uh, like Chris Sale and Jose Quintana. And, uh, you know, he was in the Adam Eaton deal. And so you think like, okay, so these guys who were acquired for this, this movement are all being rewarded and they haven't come to me with a number. That's a little bit weird. <laughs> it just seemed like, a, you know, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, what do they not believe in me the way they believe in these other guys? So I think that's maybe one weird side effect of these deals is that, you know, maybe it says something about the guys who aren't being extended. Um, you know, my, I guess my reservations with predicting a Giolito extension, and you can see if this, this, uh, talks you out of it, or if you're going to forge ahead, but two things are, and, and this didn't actually work out with Mankata, but, you know, Giolito comes from a, you know, he's well off. He has families well off. He's not hurting for money. Uh, he, he knew his value when he was drafted out of high school. He seems to know it now, uh, seems to be very aware of just like, his role in the game and perhaps in the union. And so, you know, maybe he's not going to accept, uh, you know, a life, you know, quote, unquote, for him, a life-changing contract deal just because the White Sox offered it to him. So there's that. Uh, the other thing is that when you look at the pitchers that White Sox had previously extended, uh, when you look at, uh, you know, Sale and Quintana and Gavin Floyd and Danks and, uh, you know, that, that whole um, group of them, none of them had a Tommy John surgery uh, in their history. And 
And, you know, Aaron Bummer did have a Tommy John surgery, but I think with relievers, it's different given that you know, his, you know, if he maxes out his salary, you know, his, his, his highest salary of any of these years might not compare to like Giolito's second arbitration year. So it's a whole different echelon of dollars we're talking about to where a second Tommy John surgery could really throw off uh, the White Sox payroll. But with Giolito, given that he's already been under the knife once, they might, I'm thinking they might be content just to ride it out for the rest of the team control period and then see what happens after that. What say you? All right. So what I put on Twitter, so if you follow me on Twitter, at SoxMachine underscore Josh, I have a Twitter poll, and I, I my original idea on how the contract would be set up and what I would offer to Lucas Giolito. And, you know, over 60% so far, and you guys can vote as well. The The poll will be on SoxMachine.com. Everyone can go, and you can make your voice heard on yay or nay uh, if this contract setup would go. Uh, but for Giolito, kind of similar setup as you on Makata. Give him a $4 million signing bonus, boost his pay in 2020 to a million dollars. And then in 2021, $10 million, 2022, $12 million, 2023, $14 million, 2024, $18 million, and then 2025, make that a club option for $25 million or a $5 million buyout. That puts you at five years, $64 million or six years at $84 million. Now, Lucas Giolito is a free agent after what he did last year. He's making more than that, but that's not the way that things work. The White Sox still have control of him over the next four years. And, you know, big shout out to uh, Karkovice squad, uh, Sox machine, frequent commentator. Uh, He pointed on Twitter, Josh, your arm years are way off. And I think he's right because I look at Garrett Cole Garrett Cole only made $24 million in his ARB years. Hmm. That's it. So I'm adjusting my plan. So you can make fun of my plan on Twitter. That's fine. I have a lot of hot takes that I put on Twitter that you guys can make fun of. But let me adjust it based on Karkovice squad. And it would pay him $24 million from 2021 to 2023. $6, 8 $10 million to give him a $2 million increase. Still give him a million dollars in 2020. And then 2024, his first free agent year, boost that from 10 million to 18 million. And then in 2025, still have the $25 million club option with the $5 million buyout. That puts you at five years, 52 million for Lucas Giolito, plus the $25 million option, um, which that would put him at six years, $72 million. Uh, if you went that route, which that might be closer to reality. So let's just based on that. Do you think Lucas Giolito would sign a five-year, $52 million contract with a club option for the 2025 season valued at $25 million, Jim? Uh, maybe, but just because Blake Snell signed for five years and $50 million after winning the Cy Young. Bingo. See? Enticing him to get paid more than a Cy Young award winner. Ah, but Rickon won't do that because Lucas Giolito didn't win the Cy Young. So it would be less than five years, 50 million is what you're saying. I'm thinking that's what they would offer him. But, um, you know, for you, like trying to think of you know, how the White Sox have typically approached pitching. And they've been pretty conservative when it comes to approaching uh, like, you know, pitchers in the open market. That's why they, uh, <laughs> that's why they, uh, Zach Wheeler was such a, an aberration. Then Dallas Keuchel signing him seemed more their natural mode. Um, but when you look at like, say Giolito's got four years of contract left, 
uh, and he's not, you know, I don't think he would get a, you know, Chris Sale was an immediate bargain the moment the, uh, you know, before the ink dried on that contract. It was just, uh, of course, he would, you know, the, the White Sox would want him to sign that deal. Same thing with the Quintana, uh, and, and Quintana given his longer path to the big leagues and just his, uh, you know, that he was a minor league signing by the White Sox and that he'd already faced, uh, you know, suspension and just all these kind of uh, things that could have made him a, a, you know, just a footnote in the minors for his career. Uh, you know, his contract also made sense for him to sign and made sense for the White Sox to sign it. I think when it comes to Giolito and, and, the, and the four years of control they have left and, uh, you know, his inconsistent track record so far, I, you know, my in, inkling is to say the White Sox only want to go so far and Giolito might not want to sign for that. So I, I think it might be harder for the two sides to meet. Um, but yeah, I've been wrong in that before. So uh, that's just my general sense of it, given just the the previous injuries, previous you know, inconsistencies, and, uh, and, and well, I shouldn't say inconsistencies, more like the wild swingings performance between two years ago and last year. Just makes it, I think, harder to for both sides to find a number that's reasonable uh, for, that reflects both, uh, past performance, potential, and also the inherent risks. I do want to point out that in 2011, the White Sox did sign John Danks to a five-year, $65 million contract. It's it's odd on how how financial uh, finances have changed or evolved in baseball. I think the difference, though, is that Danks was entering his last year of arbitration, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yep. Okay, so different time periods here. The White Sox were trying to buy out four years of free agency for John Danks. Uh, we're in this scenario. We're trying to figure out a deal to not have Lucas Giolito go into arbitration and buy out his first or second year free agency eligibility in this type of offer. It's just still odd, though. I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, well, wait a second. What did John Danks sign for? And, uh, yeah, different circumstances. But still weird to say, I think Giolito can make five years, 65 million. It's not my money. Yeah. Uh, but if Blake Snell's only getting five years, 50 million, then I could see where Rick Hahn may be like, Lucas will give you five years, 45 million. Yeah, perhaps I could also see the case where just maybe it takes longer to come together and, you know, cause, uh, it's a popular time to sign, um, you know, sign extensions. But when it comes to like, you know, got, you know previous, Cy Young winners like Jacob deGrom and Justin Verlander, they waited a bit longer in their careers and signed you know, more lucrative extensions in order to get it done. But uh, just given the inconsistency in the past, it might take uh, it might might take time for the White Sox to become true believers and, uh, you know, and ultimately pony up and it cost them more. And, you know, as Chris Sale's extension shows, it might not be the best idea to sign, a, uh, you know, an extension, uh, you know, a couple of years before you have to when, you know, players approaching 30 or whatever but yeah i think uh that's my general sense of it i could be wrong i was wrong on robert i, I was with you on Mankata. i thought once robert signed Mankata's became a lot more logical but with giolito mm -hmm. the the logic is a bit far from me to, at least unless giolito buys into everything too but just given the, his background given my sense of his uh I guess his attitude towards his responsibility as a player and, and such like the way Jeff Samarja was uh, very, yeah, maybe not as adamant as Samarja to hit uh, or, or reach free agency as fast as possible, but somewhere along those lines, I think he might feel a little bit more duty to uh, capitalize on his value. 
The other aspect is that you do have Ronaldo Lopez and Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech behind Lucas Giolito. And if all three perform well, Rick Hahn's going to have to figure that out. Or he's just going to have to ride the arbitration wave, which best of luck to you having to go to court with uh, with all of them and talk out about uh, how none of them deserve what they're asking for <laughs> or negotiate well, year to year. I don't feel I don't feel that sorry for him just because uh, of all the ones he's avoided so far. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But that is something that to consider as far as when Rick Hans played is long-term planning. How do you financially plan if Lucas Giolito, Dylan Cease, Reynaldo Lopez, and Michael Kopech perform at the level that we hope that they do in 2020 and beyond. But again, you can make your voice heard on SoxMachine.com in the comments section, or you could also vote in the Twitter poll as well. You can follow me at SoxMachine underscore Josh, and please also follow at SoxMachine as we're about 10 followers away from 6,000 on Twitter. Uh, so if you're on Twitter and you're not following us at Sox Machine, please take a moment to do so. Okay, one last thing to talk about before we have Dan Zaborski join the show to continue the conversation about Yohan Mikata's contract extension and then Luis Robert. Uh, another Twitter poll that I put out there, and the question was, after two weeks of spring training, who do you think would be the White Sox opening day second baseman? Overwhelmingly, 71.5% said Lurie Garcia, Jim. Now, the last podcast we did, which was two weeks ago, we both were on the Nick Magical starting opening day train. Are you still on that train? Yeah, with, I think, the same amount of confidence, where I gave him more a plurality than a majority. Um, just seems like when you, when you see all these extensions being signed and uh, the way the White Sox have set themselves up for the next, like, five, six years doesn't seem like the time to go back into the service time wars to me and, and starting the clock and everything like that. It just would strike me as like uh, kind of counterproductive to the whole, you know, movement building they're doing. And, you know, if, if the White Sox like them in, in a couple of years, it seems like they uh, they would find some way to get it done. Danny Mendick has been slightly performing better offensively than Nick Magical, though. After the first two weeks, obviously there's two weeks more to go and Nick Magical can flip the script and then he's the clear choice to be the starting second baseman for the White Sox. But in his first two weeks of spring training, are you concerned about his performance, especially at the plate? No, I mean, nobody's really covering themselves in glory at second base. They've all been off to slow starts, all three of them. And I think Mendick was playing some left field uh, just to, to, I think, expand his utility profile and maybe... Uh, you know, underscoring that uh, point that he's not going to be you know, getting regular second base reps, whether in April or uh, the rest of the year. Yeah, I think it'll be a primary infield position, but just I think that spot will be taken. Um, so I'm still leaning towards Magical. It just seems to make sense to me. Just he, He's showing what he showed in Charlotte and other levels where he's mainly right field oriented in terms of his contact, but the defense has been good and just, yeah, I, when it comes to spring training, I tend not to look too much at uh, performances if uh, walks and strikeouts, uh, at least if walks and strikeouts aren't out of whack and they aren't really out of whack for Magical. So he's the guy we think he is and who the White Sox think he is. And I'm not sure what Charlotte's going to teach him based on the way he played there last year. Well, we'll see how these next two weeks go. I, I think it would be greatly beneficial if Nick Magical can catch on fire offensively and just settle dispositional debate this week and make it clear that he is the best second baseman in camp right now. I just, 
stats don't mean anything in spring training. I know there's a lot of folks concerned about Edwin Encarnacion at the plate. I am not concerned because spring training numbers mean nothing. But when you're in a position battle and you got three people, three players vying for opening day starting spot at second base, I think you got to look at the performance and decide, you know, go with the hot hand to start the year. And I just like Nick Magical to settle this debate this upcoming week and just make it known that he is the best option. I think it would help a great deal making this decision, Jim, if Nick Magical caught on fire and he's hitting better than 222. I agree with that. And I think the Larry argument is just Rick Renteria trusts him a lot. He likes what he brings to the lineup. He, <laughs> like, he's a. Uh, He's not a good leadoff man, but he's uh, a good leadoff man in the sense that it batting first doesn't phase him. Uh, I think the way it phases some other guys and makes them think they need to be a table setter, look at more pitches, get themselves in bad counts, make themselves feel uncomfortable. Larry doesn't seem to care. He just, uh, you know, and I don't think he should either. It's not in his game to draw walks, work deep counts. He doesn't have the hit tool to uh, really fend off two strike pitches in order to make uh, at bats productive. He is who he is and he seems comfortable with that. So, uh, you know, if they want to have somebody batting in front of, um, you know, Mancata against, uh, you know, righties who isn't Tim Anderson, then probably Larry is the guy, even if he's, you know, got an on-base percentage of 318. Uh, at least he just knows what he does once he gets on base and scores enough runs. You know, at least last year he scored enough runs uh, based on his on-base percentage. I think like, yeah, it works well enough for a year and just buying themselves time. Well, this week, Michael Kopech is making his first start on Tuesday. It'll only be one inning, but that's good news. He's making his first start. Gio Gonzalez is pitching on Wednesday after Lucas Giolito makes a start and Dylan Cease is going to be starting on Monday and he's been throwing the ball well. This has been one of the more pleasant spring trainings in recent years, Jim, and I love it so far. Yeah, just, uh, uh, yeah, I guess none of the injuries are really all that worrisome at this point, or at least they're progressing positively and on a regular timeline when the White Sox said they're going to be. So, yeah, just, uh, you know, if, if second base, uh, yeah, if unimpressive second base performances are the biggest concerns right now, uh, we've seen worse. Well, Jim and I will reconvene to answer your questions in P.O. Sox later in the show, but coming up next, our best friend of the show, Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs.com, will be joining us to give his take on the Yuan Mikata contract extension and tell us why Luis Robert is the key to the White Sox 2020 playoff chances. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Join us now on the Sox Machine Podcast is our best friend of the show. To continue the conversation about Yoan Makata's new contract extension and start our 2020 White Sox outfield preview with Luis Robert. From Fangraphs.com, 
It's Dan Zaborski. And hello, Dan. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Josh. We always have fun. You haven't uh, – your, your taco preferences haven't scared me off. Well, that's good because I, I have some news. I went to Cozumel, Mexico. I, I had lunch there. I had a taco platter. You didn't go to Taco Bell in Mexico. I don't even know where the Taco Bell is in Cozumel. Thank goodness. There's a Burger okay. King, though, uh, which scares me. Yeah, but that's a monarchy. You have to obey them or they can you know, execute you. <laughs> True, by feeding you one of those impossible Whoppers. Uh, if Burger King would like to sponsor this show, please disregard that last comment. Anyways, <laughs> uh, I had a taco platter for lunch there, and, and I have to admit, it was way better than Taco Bell. Yeah, I, 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 I hope we're on, we gave you on the right path in life. Well, your well, taco-related <laughs> path, at least. Yeah, I'll just have to somehow get over my vice of the cheesy gordita crunch, and then maybe I can swear off Taco Bell. Yeah, I hope Forever. you didn't. I hope you didn't go into you know like like a small uh, uh, food by the side of the road and ask for the Dorito Taco Loco. <laughs> what you don't think they would have them? I don't think they would have them. Oh man, man, they are missing out. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's talk about Yohan Makata's contract extension. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I got news of this while hopping on the cruise Wi-Fi. Very exciting news for White Sox fans, Dan, because. He's going to be around for at least 2024, most likely into 2025 as the White Sox. That club option is still very attractive. If Yohan Mikata continues to play the way that he did, to that's a good place to start when speaking about Yohan Mikata. As far as the contract itself, after the season he had last year, is this a fair deal for all parties involved? It's a pretty good deal. I mean, obviously, it's less than he would make if he were a free agent, but that's, of course, not the, the rules of the system he plays in for, for however you feel about that. Uh, Zips, uh, based on like the arbitration awards, thought it was, it was pretty close, uh, which, which is probably good for the White Sox because they didn't have a great deal of leverage with, with Mankata. Because, I mean, remember, he signed, what, $31 million uh, signing bonus when he came out of Cuba. So he wasn't a player like, like you know, Albies in, 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 in um, Atlanta that they could kind of, you know, lowball. I think it's a good offer based on the constraints of the CBA, and, and it's good they had that done. Now, Zips is projecting Makata to be a four-war player in 2020. Again, that's his 50th percentile projection. What would McConaughey's 90th percentile projection for 2020 would look like? Well, I can actually say that as I slowly open things up, as I filibuster the question while the computer opens up the program. Here, actually, let's go to the next question, and we'll come back to this one when I have it open. Okay, so while you figure out and you let us know <laughs> uh, what the 90th percentile projection would be for Makata, looking at this contract and even going to Fangraphs.com, where we are lucky enough to see 2021 and 2022 Zips projections before the 2020 season starts. If those projections hold true, as again, you can go to Fangraphs.com to look at them. Mikata is supposed to be a four-war player in 2020, 2021, and 2022. If that happens, including Mikata's first three seasons with the White Sox, he's going to have a career war over 20-plus. And that's over the cheap part for the White Sox paying him. The second half of this contract extension from 2023 to 2025 is $66 million. Those are his age 28, 29, and 30 seasons, which should be his career peak. And still $66 million over that age range still could be cheap for the White Sox. 
Does Mikata's playing style give you confidence, Dan, that his overall value will continue to rise until this contract reaches its end? I think he's probably near the player he's going to be. I don't think he's going to become, you know, Mike Trout or, you know, a peak year Mookie Betts, but I think he's going to be regularly around like the four win mark. Yeah, there'll be some up seasons, some down seasons. Real life is never quite as smooth as the projections, but I think that's about where he'll be. Uh, I actually do have the 90th percentile which is a 285, 359, 559 line with 35 home runs, 93 runs, 26 stolen bases, uh, and 5.6 war. That's the, the 90th percentile mark. So if he repeats last year, he'll be approaching his 90th percentile projection from Zips. Uh, well, yeah, about, about that. I mean, he was probably, uh, I, I don't want to sound negative, but that was probably kind of on the upper side of what you expect from him because he's, He's really like, you know, a 340, 350 batting average and balls in play guy. Zips thinks he has him at 352, which is a very high batting average and balls in play projection. But it's not going to – It's I mean, it could be 400 again, but it would, wouldn't would be his baseline expectation. You, you expect to give some of this back. Uh, Zips is, you know, saying that if he hits that percentage, it, it won't be luck-based. That's kind of just what he could be as a baseline, uh, which, which is, you know – pretty nice even and you know even the 10 percent is actually pretty good uh the 10 percent, i mean it's 259 316 405 18 home runs uh 1.9 war but that's still a league average player so i mean what zips is saying essentially is that there's a 90 percent chance he's at least going to be league average and after some of his up and down early uh seasons i i think that's actually a pretty good place to be. Uh, I mean, it's essentially saying that there's only a 10% chance he's going to be the 2018 player again, which is a nice projection, I think. Yeah, I, I like this deal for Yohan Makata. It does give him financial security. And as I said earlier in the show, I love this deal from a White Sox perspective because even if they do pick up that club option, it's about $88 million up to maybe $90 million over six seasons for a four-war player. And we know that in free agency, four-war players, for the most part, position players like Yohan Makata, get better deals in six-year $90 million in the open market, especially for outstanding third basemen. Uh, so we'll see on where Yohan Makata ends up as far as 2020. The projection model as far as Zips still likes Makata to be a four-war player, and the White Sox haven't had a consistent four-war player on the diamond uh, in a really long time, and hopefully another one will be starting his career off on that same foot, and that's going to be Luis Robert. And switching gears and beginning our 2020 White Sox outfielders preview, and when it comes to the Chicago White Sox outfield in 2020, all eyes are going to be on Luis Robert. He signed his extension this offseason for six years, $50 million. That could be eight years, $88 million if his club options are picked up. And he's a fascinating talent. We've seen him already produce in big ways during spring training. And White Sox fans have waited a long time to see him in Chicago. Dan, you wrote last week about Luis Robert on Fangraphs and how he might impact the White Sox playoff odds significantly based on how well he performs in 2020. In what ways do you envision that Robert could help break the 12-season playoff drought for the White Sox? Well, if you, if you go back to the piece, one of the things... Uh, that that was fascinating is kind of his defense. And, you know, projecting a, a minor league player's defense is incredibly, incredibly difficult, even for scouts. There's a lot of guys that people think, 
are going to be amazing defensive players from their scouting reports and turn out not to be, like uh, Gregory Polanco in Pittsburgh or Arcia in, in, in Milwaukee uh, or even Rosario to an extent with the Mets. A lot of these guys don't turn out to be you know great defensive players and guys who don't really have a reputation for being you know good defensively in the minors turn out to be. Uh, I, I think of like Brendan Ryan, who became a terrific defensive shortstop in the majors. No one was talking about him like he was some all-world defensive talent when he was coming through. I mean, scouts are right a lot, but not always. Uh, but one of the things is, is from a data standpoint, one of the things that Zips does, I have a little thing called ZDEF, uh, which is essentially tracking every ball hit in the minor leagues uh, based on location data from uh, MLB uh, game day data. Uh, and it assigns a probability to each ball hit. His 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 first you know fragmentary two years in the minors, uh, Robert Robert, however you want to call him, he his defense was just fairly normal. But last year when he was healthy, his his defensive numbers really really took off. Now of course there's a lot of uncertainty about these defensive numbers. They're nowhere near as good as a as a tracking method in the majors, so they're estimates. But Using this method, it had him as the second best defensive player of any position in the minors last year. And Zips, of course, is being you know fairly conservative about applying that because it's one year, again, the, 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 the fallibility of the data. But if he really is as good, I mean, it was saying that he was a 20-plus, a plus 20 defensive player in the outfield last year. And that is a massive number. And if he's anywhere near half that, it adds pretty much a whole win to his projection, which, you know, changes things. Uh, when when I uh, projected uh, different White Sox players, I looked at the percentiles and I re-predicted the team. And, Ro- and Robert's percentiles, whether it was 90% or 10%, had a pretty big effect uh, on, the, on the team's playoff odds. Uh, and also, if I pro- one of the things that Zips also did is it only projected him to play 122 games. He plays 145 games because he's healthier and because you know health is tricky. Then that also gives a big boost. Uh, when I ran the projections last week, at the 50th percentile, assuming 145 games, uh, they had the White Sox at about 13 percent to win the division. But if if Robert hits his 90th percentile projection, that nearly doubles the White Sox playoff probability to 22 percent. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, it's a team that hasn't gotten a lot out of center field for a long time, and he literally could put up a superstar season. It wouldn't be that crazy. But you did mention, as far as in that same article, that, again, that's Robert at plus four defense. If he's a plus 14 defensive player like he was last year in the minor leagues, uh, that 90th percentile projection, if he hits as far as offensively, which we'll talk about in a moment, could give the White Sox a twenty-five percent chance of winning the American League Central. Yes, 20, if if you get the if you give the D, it was actually twenty-six percent even. But it's the point is it's a big number and it goes up quite a bit uh, with, with the better he plays. And you don't see that same kind of spread with say like Nomar Mazzara. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't expecting uh, any any projection to project plus fourteen defense for Nomar Mazzara. Uh, in 2020 for the White Sox. I would welcome it. I'm not expecting it. Now, moving over as far as to the offense for Luis Robert. And again, as you mentioned in the article, there's the 121 game projection, which is the the first projection that we saw for Luis Robert when you released the Zips 2020 season preview projections, where 
Robert's 50th percentile over 121 games is 20 home runs hit. And it could range anywhere from his 10th percentile projection where he hits 15 to his 90th percentile where he hits 29. If Robert could stay healthy and he plays at least 145 games, uh, Zips does see an increase where his home run range from his 10th percentile projection is 17 home runs to his 90th, which is 34 home runs, um, which would be amazing. And and his war goes from anywhere from 1.3 to 5.4 if he can play 145 games. For Luis Robert himself, you listed the ways that Luis Robert can drastically help the Chicago White Sox in 2020 as far as their playoff odds. Is health going to be the biggest contributor to Luis Robert's 2020 season, Dan? Uh, it could be because the thing is, the healthier he is, the more likely they are to let him steal bases. Uh, generally, if a player has a lot of nagging injuries, you don't want them to steal bases. Uh, if if you look at the healthy version of the projection and the 90th percentile, he's actually in kind of near where where a 40-40 season is plausible. Uh, obviously, the odds are pretty long because we're already talking 90th percentile. He's already not quite there, and it's assuming he's healthy. But there's not a lot of players that you can say, hey, he could hit 40-40 and not laugh about it. Uh, so to have that kind of talent on the team, it, it, again, it's, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, if if uh, the White Sox can find a few more guys like him, they'd be the favorite this year, I think. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, that would be awesome uh, if they had a, a few more like him. Unfortunately, they don't. I don't think many teams have Luis Roberts in their farm system right now, or at least multiple players on that type of caliber. But continuing with the offensive discussion, and again, as I mentioned, it's a wide range for 2020 and what Luis Roberts' season could look like. But over the last 20 seasons, since 2000, the Chicago White Sox have only had six center fielders post a weighted runs created plus of more than 100 in a single season, which again, 100 is league average. Those six center fielders are Adam Eaton, Alex Rios. Oh, you're, oh you're not going to make me guess. I was worried you are going to okay, make me guess. Okay, you know what? I'll, but, I'll give, you, I'll oh give you those two. Okay, well, let me guess. Adam Eaton. Yep. Alex Rios. Yes. Uh, did Chris Singleton do it at one time? He was before 2000. Oh, was it before? What year? Was, what year did Chris Singleton do it? Ninety-nine. Ninety-nine. Okay, so I wasn't. I was a little worried that it was much farther back <laughs> than 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 I hoped because you know I uh, his 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 uh, uh not not related but Justin Singleton, Ken Singleton's son, hit a home run off me in Little League like like a million feet. Uh, I guess that's nice. It, well, for him, it wasn't really nice for me because we lost because uh, I kind of sucked <laughs> and our team kind of sucked. Uh, Okay, Alex Rios, uh, and we're not counting. Uh, did Pud Sednick ever come near 100? I don't. Or have I lost my mind? He got to 99. Okay, I thought that maybe that year that, that we all pretended he was good, that yep. that he would. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to believe how long ago that was. I know, man. Okay, uh, f- 15 years now. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Aaron Rowan? Yes. Okay. Well, are we at four or five? You're at three. Oh, oh God. <laughs> you got a six. I'm not great at counting. Uh, uh, did Lofton do it that year that they had him and they he went to the Giants? Yes, that's four. Hmm. Okay, I'm trying to think. Who else would it have been? I'm, I'm trying to think of the center field. We said Eaton. I'm sure Diaz never did that. 
Incorrect. Diazza did do it. I, I said I. Oh, he did do it. <laughs> he did in 2012. 106. So that's five. What if, wow! I can't believe. Okay. Well, I. Well, kind of. It. I'm kind of like permanently wrong because I said he didn't do it. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I know Brian Anderson did it. No. And I'm pretty sure Larry Garcia did it. And who else was there? Uh, did Carl. Did Carl Everett do it? No. But he was he still. He wasn't still playing center field at that point. Carl Everett did do it in 2003. Oh. See, I'm, I'm good at so naming people that didn't do it. That... <laughs> you doubt him. You're like, there's no way they did it. Well, actually, they did. Yeah. So I think, I'm trying to think who else that leaves. I mean, did, I'm sure. Did McCoviak do it? No. <laughs> no he was okay. terrible for the White Sox. Yeah, but he was terrible everywhere. Yeah, true. Nick Swisher didn't do it. Uh, that I'm sure there's a lot of folks that would would have guessed him. Scott Pasednik didn't do it. Those that's it. Just those six: Adam Eaton, Alex Rios, Alejandro Diaz, Aaron Rowan, Carl Everett, and Kenny Lofton are the six White Sox center fielders since 2000 to post a league average or better offensive season. So Dan, I'll put you on the spot. Will Luis Robert become the seventh center fielder since 2000 to post a better? I'll say yes. You'll say yes. I'll say yes. Uh, I I completely forgot that 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 there was a period of time where people pretended that Nick Swisher was a center fielder, and that just feels so weird. <laughs> I wouldn't have even guessed it. But no, if you had told me that if you told me like before this that Nick Swisher played center field for the White Sox, I would have called you a liar. But I just opened it up just now because after you referenced Nick Swisher, I I went into Fangraphs. And yeah, he he played 132 games in his career at in center, 70 for the White Sox, and then a bunch for the Athletics, and and one horrible game, I guess, for the Yankees in 2010. But uh, it's it, it's weird. It's it's kind of like when you remember that Kevin Mitchell came up as a shortstop. He did. Yeah. Wow. See now it's now it's now it's my turn to 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 to, uh, to blow up your brain. Uh, he he played like you know with with the Mets. He came up in '86, and they kind of would play him at shortstop occasionally, but they had a ground ball picture. They were playing Rafi Santana. Uh, but no, he got like 15, 20 starts uh, at, at short for the Mets. Uh, the The Giants stopped doing that pretty quickly, but they did play him at third base, hmm. which is a weird sight also if you remember Kevin Mitchell. Yes, I do. Wow. <laughs> wow. Random trivia during this segment. Uh, so continuing on with Luis Robert, we, we did get, I think, a, a worthwhile fan question from, as in rec, one of our Patreon supporters. And uh, they're asking, when it comes to Luis Robert, you know, Dan's discussion of how Zips may be underestimating Luis Robert's defense has me wondering how common is that kind of uncertainty in the model and how unusual a case is Luis Robert when it comes to Zips? He's, he's fairly unusual just because there's so little defensive data from him uh, because again, the minor league data kind of sucks. It's just what we have to go with. And usually there's, there's just, you usually have a little longer period of time before a player gets hit to the, gets, gets to the majors. Uh, and then you have a lot of uncertainty in that a lot of his experience isn't in the United States. Uh, it, it, it's when, you know, he was in Cuba and it's not like you have, we don't even have that kind of defensive data for Cuba. So we don't know really how his defense was as a teenager in Cuba. He's still very young. He went through three levels. You add in the fact that, that he was injured, the fact that his projection was – or his uh, estimate of his performance was so out there. I mean 20 runs is a lot of runs. 
uh, again, the second most in the minors. Uh, so I, I couldn't exactly give like an exact number for how rare it is, but there's a lot of things that combine to to add quite a bit of uncertainty. And then finally, to wrap up as far as this segment, my question to you, Dan, and to kind of carry over to the other outfield per previews we'll have later on the show, is Luis Robert in 2020 the preseason favorite to win American League Rookie of the Year? I might be forgetting someone, but I'll say yes. Who else would be there? Be a contender? I mean, I, technically Nick Madrigal. I don't think Michael Kopech counts anymore because of his injury. Does he count? But remember, they don't count September active roster. Oh, uh, that's right. His oh, He's such a weird case, isn't he? Yeah. I, yeah. I, baseball reference says it's still intact through 2020. Now, they're not perfect, but I think that that he still qualifies. Even though his service, he accumulated service time through 2019 because of his injury. Wow, that is fascinating. It's it's active roster. That's the Larry Walker exception. Uh, when Larry Walker was injured with the Expos, uh, he was mostly it, it's 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 time on the active roster uh, outside of September, unless I've I've uh, garbled that. So now now yet now I'm second guessing myself and opening up. Yeah, it says to qualify as a rookie in Major League Baseball, a player must not have exceeded 130 at bats or 50 innings pitched in the majors, and also fewer than 45 days on the active rosters of Major League clubs, excluding time on the disabled list or any time after rosters are expanded on September 1st. All right, so I guess Michael Kopech still counts. He yeah, can still I, win Rookie of the Year. There are there are others. Uh, I mean, I don't think that like Nate Pearson's going to be up quick enough. That he's as dangerous. He he could be pretty good pretty quickly. Uh, I think Brendan McKay might be a risk. Uh, 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 Jesus Lazardo is still is still uh, eligible. That could be a big deal. I don't think Joe Adele is going to come up quick enough to really be a huge threat. But of course, Alvarez did last year. Um, maybe Casey Mize, but again, I don't think he's going to be up at the start of the year. But I think those are probably the bigger, bigger ones. I mean, there'll be other prospects up. I mean, we'll probably see Ryan Mountcastle this year, maybe, maybe Bobby Bradley or Davey Garcia, but I don't think that they're as big threats. All right. So Vegas right now has Luis Robert seven and one odds to win the American league rookie of the year. I recommend throwing some money on there, seeing that sports betting has finally became legal. And you, there's a casino now just outside of Chicago uh, where we can place bets I recommend placing a bet on Luis Robert at seven to one odds to win American League Rookie of the Year. I think those are pretty decent odds. But you can follow Dan on Twitter. He is at D Zimborski, and you can read his excellent work on Fangraphs.com. I believe you still do a chat, even though your days keep moving. I believe because when I <laughs> yeah try to join, uh, oh, it's not Dan doing the chat. Yeah, I I didn't do a Thursday chat because I was I was off semi off work for a week after the zips crunch was done and i didn't do my chat uh during the zips crunch because i had a lot of work to do uh but we should be back this week back to normal thursday schedule uh, uh so you can find my great work at fangraphs you can also find my my lesser and my lousy work at fangraphs too all of it's there <laughs> now come on there's there's no non-great work yeah yeah there is but you know people you know you want the fun and say okay where's the mediocre dan stuff and you have to say oh maybe he writes it for another site like no no it's it's here too well it could be on twitter though. it could be but those aren't really pieces that's just me like rambling about whatever got it 
Got it. So if you want to see Dan's great, mediocre, and lousy work, all of that is on Fangraphs.com. And he has his chat on Thursdays, also on Fangraphs.com. And Dan, as always, thanks for coming on the show. And as always, thanks for having me. Coming up next, Patrick Nolan will be joining me to continue the 2020 Chicago White Sox outfield preview. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. After Dan Zaborski spoke about Luis Robert, we continue our outfield preview with breakdowns for Aloy Jimenez and Nomar Mazzara. Joining me is fellow editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Patrick Nolan, but in these parts, we know him as Pinoles. And hello, Pinoles. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Josh. Always great to do it. We'll get to Aloy Jimenez in a moment, but let's start this segment with Nomar Mazzara. He's the one offseason move that I look at as still being the most questionable. As we have learned since the trade, the White Sox were seriously considering signing Yasiel Puig during the winter meetings. But after meeting with him and understanding what his demands were, they decided against that route and completed the trade with the Texas Rangers for Nomar Mazzara. You wrote a column, Pinoles, on SoxMachine.com about how the trade could end up being, quote-unquote, fine for the White Sox, listing out the ways, one, they could acquire a platoon partner to face lefties, two, the White Sox have conviction that they could unlock Mazzara's potential, or three, the White Sox didn't like this winter's right field market and have big plans to address the position next winter. Well, obviously, number one didn't happen. The White Sox did not sign a platoon partner to help Nomar Mazar in right field to face lefties. And from SoxFest, the White Sox have publicly shown some conviction that they do believe that Nomar Mazar's best days are coming. Also coming are Mookie Betts and George Springer as free agents next year. So P. Knowles... Where does Mazar's performance need to be for the White Sox to be sold that Nomar Mazar is not only their right fielder for 2020, but also 2021? You know, I'm kind of worried that the White Sox and me have different standards for what constitutes acceptable enough for them to not move on from him. Because um, I think that um, the bar has to be set pretty high. I mean, the guy has a lot of plate appearances to his name already, and he hasn't shown a whole lot just yet. And I think that one thing that would be concerning is if he has just this one-year flash in the flash in the pan breakout, a la Avisel Garcia from 2017 or something like that, where he starts to look like maybe he could be a star player, but then just kind of goes back to his uh, you know regular old self um, the following year. And I guess Garcia kind of improved a little bit, but but not so much that you would want to make him like the the right fielder of the future. So for a guy like Mazzara, um, you really do need to see like a three-and-a-half-plus war performance that isn't fluky and built on, you know, fortunate results on contact, good BABIP, that kind of stuff. He needs to he needs to have a convincing performance where that strong power of his is on display much more consistent, consistently. He probably needs to have a little bit of a breakthrough against right hand, against the left-handed pitchers so that he doesn't have to be hidden from them at all times. Um, if he takes a step forward like that and, and uh, you know, shows that a guy with, a power, with power like him can put up home run numbers – a little bit closer to like the 30, 35 range. Um, then I think you're, uh, then I think you're talking about somebody who might be able to stick around. But I mean, for a guy who plays defense as poorly, he does in right field. The bar for that bat is extremely high. So he really does need to have a great season for the White Sox. In my opinion, for the White Sox to not want to move on. Zips is projecting 
over 134 games for Nomar Mazzara to be worth 0.9 war, hitting 22 home runs, which would be a career high, at a 252-307-439 slash line. Obviously, that's not reaching the bar that you set, P. Knowles, just, <laughs> just a moment ago. Uh, doesn't even come close to that bar. If Zips is right on the money with Nomar Mazar's 50th percentile projection, do the White Sox have to find another right fielder elsewhere after this season? Oh, of course they do. I mean, first of all, because if, if Mazzara puts up those numbers this year, he's he's a non-tender candidate at that price. Uh, I, I'd say that they should they should certainly non-tender him if he has a season like that. Uh, he's already, you know, starting to creep up. Uh, you know, he's over his salary starting to creep up into the high. Uh, what would that be seven figures? I mean, if he has like decent home run and RBI numbers, you know, he'll probably get a little bit of a bump assuming he gets enough plate appearances. That's not even a guy you want to tender, let alone not upgrade over. So he, he, uh, that can't happen. Um, he's, that's, I think the, the stat line that everyone is afraid was afraid of when they acquired him. And, you know, it's not about, it's not about what they gave up. It's not about how much they're paying him. It's about giving plate appearances to somebody who has to be balanced out by better players elsewhere on the roster, the cost of having of employing Nomar Mazara again for another year beyond this one would not be whatever they're paying him. It would be the opportunity cost of being able to put a good to great player in right field for the following season. So I, I think that he really needs to improve a lot on those median zips projections. Opening day is two weeks away, and we're already contemplating the White Sox possibly non-tendering no more Mazzara after the 2020 season. I think you're right, though. I was contemplating that when they traded for him. Well, I, I think you're right, though. If if Zips is on the money, and that's the season No more Mazzara provides, yes, some of you listening right now on your commute are right by saying, uh, look at the 2019 right field production the White Sox had. That is a significant boost to what they had. <laughs> But for a team that wants to contend, for a team that wants to make the playoffs, for a team that wants to be that dark horse contender and sneak up on the Minnesota Twins and possibly winning the American League Central in 2020, no more Mazzara has to be better than that, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, just saying that uh, it's not that much of a compliment to say that he was better than the smoldering husk of John Jay and, and Ryan Cordell, who's not even with the organization anymore. I mean, that's... Yes, he was an upgrade, and I, I don't think that anybody, even the people who hate the move the most, um, which I guess maybe I'd be, I could be among those people, but um, but he is, I mean, it was an upgrade. I think everybody would be open to admitting that, but he was not enough of one, and more importantly, he's not he's not even an average major league right fielder, barring some significant improvement. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's it's kind of damning with faint praise by saying he was better than the. <laughs> The, the smorgasbord of garbage that filtered through right field last year. All right, prediction time. Eight months from now, will be November, approaching the GM meetings. Looking into your crystal ball, Penals, when it comes to the White Sox and the right field position, what do you think we will be talking about? Well, I mean, I'm thinking that I'm ho- I know that the thing fans are going to be talking about Mookie Betts and George Springer uh, just because they're going to be the biggest names out there. Um, and I, I think that if their designs on, if they have designs on getting either guy and this, that really is the plan, 
then I think that the whole Nomar Mazara trade becomes a lot more forgivable because maybe that just means that it, and this is there's some logic to this. The outfield market from this offseason was not very strong. And maybe they just said, all right, well, you know, we'll roll the dice on this guy and then we'll get the real solution the following year. But, you know, and that's I think what everyone is hoping right now is that they really do have big dreams of shooting for the stars on this. But if not those two guys, I mean, there's there's still some decent names that, that could play right field for the White Sox in 2021. I mean, Marcelo Zuna, because he took that one year deal, he'll be a free agent again, and we can redebate the merits of signing him. Uh, Jack Peterson, you know, now he won't be a trade candidate anymore. He'll be a free agent, so you could look at him. And then uh, you know, maybe Josh Reddick is still interesting at that point. I don't know. But uh, there, there's some other names out there. It's a reasonably strong right field market. And uh, if, if Nomar Mazzara um, unfortunately does what, what, what's unfortunately expected of him this year, then uh, the White Sox are going to have plenty of ways to go to improve on it for the following season. Let's move over to left field, and that's Aloy Jimenez. We spoke about how Aloy finally figured out how to hit Major League breaking pitches in September uh, during our 2019 season review of the outfielders and how he had a monster month to finish the season and getting to 31 home runs. Jimenez was also strong in June and August to go along with September, so that's half the season. The other half of the season, he was adjusting to life in the majors or he was recovering from injuries. P. Knowles, I think we got half a taste of what kind of impact Aloy Jimenez could provide to the White Sox last season. Zips has Aloy at 33 home runs through 2020. I think Aloy is going to crush that number, and I think Aloy Jimenez is going to challenge Albert Bell's franchise record of 49 home runs this season. Am I crazy to think that? I don't think you're crazy. I I feel like the sky's the limit for what he can do offensively this year. And I definitely agree with you that the home run prediction uh, seems to be a bit on the lower side for him. I think that if you're talking about a guy who last season had the struggles he did in April and May, and also some injuries mixed in there as well, if if he's a, if he's healthy and he no longer has to go through those awful struggles to begin the season because he's just getting acclimated to the major leagues, what he could do over six months, I, I just think that you know the low 30s is kind of a, a very conservative estimate of what he might be able to do. And you know what? I mean, he certainly has the ability to, to try to push upper 40s, you know, 50 home runs in a season. I would say that that's probably, you know, kind of a one of the more favorable possible outcomes, but at the same time, it is not out of the realm of possibility. I'm very excited about what he might do this year. Yeah, I mean, Bakota's 99th percentile projection for Eloy Jimenez is 54 home runs. I mean, there is a projection model out there that does think that Eloy Jimenez could hit more than 50 home runs. That may be his ceiling this year, and that would set a new franchise mark. But everything that you touched on, I, I agree with you, and I may have some money riding on the line if Aloy Jimenez leads the league <laughs> in home runs. Uh, but sticking with the offensive profile for Aloy Jimenez, other than him getting hurt, is there a part of Jimenez's offensive game that you have concerns about still? Yeah, I mean, I don't, and I don't really know that I could say it's a concern when I feel like even if he doesn't fix this, that he's probably going to produce at an all-star level at the plate. But, I mean, he doesn't draw that many walks, and I think to really post you know, a high on-base percentage, he's probably going to have to get that batting average up closer to 300, um, barring some significant improvement to his plate discipline. But, you know, by all means, he, 
there is nothing. He could not walk any more than he currently is and still be an extremely dangerous offensive player. So this isn't something that, that I am like, you know, oh my gosh, what if Aloy Menez never walks, but he hits like 40, 40 home runs every year? Like, what's the big deal? But he, uh, even if he doesn't fix that, I think he could be pretty good. But if you do have a knock on his profile, it's that and the fact that, yeah, I mean, I guess he's probably never going to be a, a great base runner or anything. But, you know, these are these are minor concerns compared to the absolute force that we saw on display in September. Okay, so let's talk about the ugly part of his game, and that's obviously the defense. I know he wants to prove that he's a better defender he showed last year, that he can make the sliding, diving, and jumping at the wall catches like other outfielders. I don't think that's necessary because the White Sox need his bat in the lineup. And if he took it easy, kind of like Carlos Lee used to take it easy in left field, I'd be okay with that because Carlos Lee played a lot of games and you could count on him being in the lineup and that's what the White Sox need. They need him as his bat in the lineup and if he catches the fly balls and fields the ground or setter hit at him, great. If he makes some plays over his head, that's okay. Just don't get hurt doing it. But what level of quality defense, Pinoles, does Jimenez need to play at so it doesn't sink his war total? Uh, I mean, I think that if he could just approach, like, if he could be, like, average to a little below average, I think that'd be perfectly fine. Um, I think, like you said, there's he's almost like a hazard to himself out there. I know he wants to throw his body around to make the great catches, but... Um, you know, obviously I would much rather have a fly ball here or there land than have him out of the lineup for, you know, a month plus. So he, uh, I think that if there's anything he could really improve upon, I mean, he just needs to get better reads. Um, he teases a little bit of an, it's a little bit of an adventure out there with the first step and all that. And, uh, you know, I think that <laughs> some of the, uh, some of the stills that Jim caught on Twitter last year, where he showed these pictures of where it's like, how did this situation even happen given where the ball is and where he wound up? So I think that he's got a little bit of work to do with uh, with getting his reads on, on target over there. And um, you know, maybe he can improve on that. Maybe he can be, uh, you know, average to below average, not like, uh, you know, bottom, you know, seven, eight outfielders in the league. Then I think that that'll allow the, the bat to really shine. And then he'll uh, start to post the war values that uh, that you think are appropriate for somebody with his, his offensive profile. All right. So we talked about Luis Robert. We talked about Nomar Mazzara. We've talked about Eloy Jimenez. The final aspect of the outfield is going to be the fourth outfielder for the Chicago White Sox. Pinos, who do you like to be the fourth outfielder for the White Sox and why? Well, you know, I think that they're, they're probably going to carry five. And I, I think that Leary Garcia, obviously, he's going to be in the mix. And I really want Adam Engel to be on the team. Um this is going to make a lot of people cringe, but I think that the reason we all have decided that Adam Engel is the worst thing imaginable is because we've been exposed to him in regular playing time in a role that he's very obviously not suited for and something that's a little bit of a sore subject because the White Sox for quite some time have failed to provide a meaningful upgrade over Adam Engel in center field. So it's a familiarity breeds contempt sort of situation, but if you look at him, um, he has, it, it, I know it was a small sample. He did hit lefties decently last season. He's an excellent defender and he's somebody that you want out there in the late innings. And he's, he's a good base runner as well. I mean, he's definitely very fast. So he, he has, he has a couple ingredients to be a very strong bench player. And I really do want him on the team. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, assuming that Nick Madrigal's at second base, or maybe they, I don't know, maybe they have Danny Mendick start the season there. Leary Garcia is a kind of an overqualified fourth outfielder, uh, so to speak. So he's a very good choice as well. 
ultimately, I think that the White Sox will have both of those guys on the team, and they'll be better for it. Would Is Adam Engel going to be the guy in the eighth inning to replace Noma Mazzara in right field? Yeah, either that or potentially potentially Aloy Jimenez, um, whichever one they uh, whichever one they feel like they got to get out of there sooner. But um, clearly, outfield defense in the corners is is not going to be a strong suit. And you know, it could be the situation where maybe they have both Garcia and Angle play in the corners in the late innings. Um, I'm not really overly concerned about losing Mazara's bat, so I think it's really just a question of um, you know whether you want to get uh, Jimenez out of the lineup and you know take the risk that maybe he might have to hit again if the, if the other team catches up. But uh, it's possible that, you know, both corner outfielders could be lifted late in the game. Yeah, I would vote for taking Nomer Bazaar out of the lineup before Eloy Jimenez. Uh, I have money <laughs> on the line, Penals. <laughs> I need all the home runs that Eloy Jimenez can provide me in 2020. Uh, to pay for a future vacation. But anyways, that's that's nobody else's concern listening to this at the moment. But that will do it for our 2020 Outfield Preview. You can follow Penals on Twitter. He's at SoxMock underscore Penals and read his excellent work, as always, on SoxMachine.com. Penals, we'll have you on in a couple of weeks for the kickoff to the 2020 season, our opening day podcast episode but thank you so much for coming back on the Sox machine podcast oh absolutely awesome as always looking forward to be on again coming up next it's your questions in p.o Sox. when you rely on the internet for everything you need speed that can handle anything xfinity delivers wi-fi speed faster than a gig go online call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today restrictions apply gig wi-fi requires gig speed and compatible x by gateway actual speeds vary not guaranteed You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine or helping support Sox Machine by becoming a friend at Patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And all of our questions this week come from our Patreon supporters. So thank you guys so much for your support. And rejoining me on the show to answer your questions is Jim Margulis. And Jim, the first question that we have in the mailbag comes from William Riemenschneider. And William is asking, Jim, in one vision of the future, all-star Luis Robert comes to the plate with the World Series on the line. And the crowd at the rate starts beginning to chant, Lou Bob and Harold Bain style. Is this sacrilege or a passing of the torch? I would say neither. It's not sacrilege. Like, in, I, mean, I assume it's sacrilege in terms of like, you know, dishonoring Harold Baines or borrowing something from Harold that shouldn't be borrowed by anybody. Um, but I would say it's not a great idea just because Luis Robert doesn't seem to like Lou Bob. Um, James Feagan has talked to him about it. He's talked to Jose Bray about the, it's the whole uh, Twitter debate between you know, La Pantera, which is what Abreu and Avi Garcia called him, or you know, Lou Bob, which is just the generic mashing together of syllables based on name, you know, just the formulaic syllable or initial based um, nickname formulation. Uh, and, and, you know, James has talked to both, you know, the Robert and Abreu, and they both said, you know, he's explained why Lou Bob to them, and they just seem to say, nah, Pantera is better. Uh, and and 
yeah, I, I understand you, know, Lubob is you know simple to say and such, and and might be satisfying to some. But when, yeah, I didn't care for the nickname just because of the genericness of it. But once Robert said that he didn't care for it, and Abreu said the same thing, it made me think like, yeah, continuing to say it is just a bad idea, just because history is fraught with uh, anglicizing uh, Latin American names like Roberto Clemente. He, he wasn't the first Latin uh, American player and he wasn't like he didn't break any boundaries in terms of you know, uh, racial or color barriers, ethnic barriers, anything like that. But he, he looms so large, one, because he you know died during a humanitarian mission, but also because he was like the first player who was unapologetic about his identity. And, and one of the big things with this identity was that he did not like being called Bob or Bobby. He was Roberto. And you know the players, announcers, writers all called him Bob. Bobby, one, his baseball card said Bob. Uh, one of them said Bob Walker, which I think was his middle name. And he was Roberto Clemente. He wanted to be called Roberto Clemente. Eventually, by the end of his career, basically like maybe 80% of everybody was on board with calling him Roberto Clemente. And it was like a, a victory won for players, other players before him or peers either didn't get, couldn't get, or just didn't have, you know, didn't care enough to really, you know, fight the battle. Like Mini Minoso, you know, he was Arrestus Minoso, but Arrestus is not a name that the, you know, baseball press recognized at the time, so they called him Mini. Uh, like Tony Perez, Bert Campaneris, Cookie Rojas, Mike Cuellar, you know, not their names. Like Mike Cuellar was Miguel Cuellar. Miguel was not recognized as a name by people at that time. They called him Mike, and so he went by Mike. And, you know, after Clemente, you know, he was like the first to establish like, no, I, I'd rather be called by, you know, my name or in this case, you know, a, a, a Spanish nickname, you know, equivalent. And I think that's probably, you know, given the history, probably smart to respect that. You know, if, if Robert didn't care, I said like, yeah, I like it well enough. Then, you know, knock yourself out. You know, I, I might not call him that, but. You know, everybody else can go nuts. The White Sox can market it as such. But if he doesn't like it, and, you know, perhaps this is something for the White Sox marketing department to uh, kind of flesh out themselves, you know, to know, like, whether to capitulate to uh, fan sentiment in this regard or, or go with player wishes. But, you know, if he doesn't care for it and if his, uh, you know, if his way of saying, like, I, I, I prefer the other one is a way of saying, like, please don't call me that, then... I would steer away from that. So I might be outnumbered or fighting a losing battle here, but that's kind of why I I advise people to go against it. I'm with you, Jim. I hate the Lou Bob nickname. Plus the La Pantera. I mean, for the heavy metal fans that like Pantera, mm -hmm. uh, you may like that as well. I'm a comic book fan. So La Pantera reminds me of Black Panther, a very popular comic book movie. And, uh, Having met Luis Robert in person, yeah, he could be a superhero uh, with the way that he's just physically built uh, and the way that he plays the game. Uh, I like the La Pantera nickname a lot, but it does remind me, remember Jorge Fabregas when he used to play for the mm -hmm. White Sox? Okay. Yep. So as a kid watching those games and when he was first introduced, I remember vividly that Hawk Harrelson would call him George, George Fabregas. Mm -hmm. And for the longest of time, I thought Jorge yeah. sounded like George in Spanish until high school Spanish year when you read those sentences when you start first starting, you know, Jorge wants to go to the store. I would say George went to the store. My Spanish teacher would tell me, no, Josh, that's not George. That's Jorge. 
And did you say Hawk said so? <laughs> that would get nowhere in Wisconsin at the time because nobody <laughs> knew who Hawk Harrelson was. Um, but, you know, that was something that stuck with me. And I felt pretty bad. That's like for the longest of time, I thought people who spelled their name Jorge was George. Just sound just like Hispanic folks that are Jesus be like, well, that's Jesus. No, that's it's Jesus. That's that's their name. And that's how they enunciated and that's how they like to you know they don't be sacrilege and keep everyone keep calling everyone yeah, i think Jesus. george bell was my first one uh, encounter with jorge because his old baseball card said jorge okay or at least maybe some early ones did and then switched to george he's jorge bell i believe so for the so okay I'm so up. i'm today's years old i thought george bell was always a george no he was he was jorge yep oh my gosh well, now I feel even worse. So let's everyone just stop calling. Oh no, you know he went by George. He went by George like okay. commonly, but oh, like early okay. early baseball cards, you know, said you know I think it might have been his rookie card. Um, yeah, I'm looking it up right now. There's some old tops cards, eighty six, eighty two. Early on, they said Jorge, and then he switched to George. So I'm not exactly sure how that came to be, but I remember being confused and just saying, "Oh, they must be pronounced the same way." So yeah, I encountered that with a different George slash Jorge. If everyone could grant Yomer Sanchez's request to go from Carlos Sanchez to Yomer Sanchez, I don't know why this is so difficult for some White Sox fans to just give up the Lou Bob nickname. I think at this point it's just stubbornness and a pointless Twitter battle that I think it's pretty clear that the star player that you're giving this nickname to doesn't really appreciate that nickname. So let's just stop with that nickname and move on. Yeah, it might be different if, like, he tried to give himself a La Pantera nickname. Like, that might be a little bit weird, you know, to offset. Even then, you know, you'd still have the same uh, connotations in terms of, you know, breakdown in terms of who's having the argument. But just, you know, you can see, like, the idea of, like, rejecting a self-branded nickname just because that's always weird. You know, typically don't give yourself a nickname. But in this case, this did have an organic uh, you know, origin story and, uh, you know, it, it, it's very fitting of him as a player and just watching him, you know, watching him move around the field. Uh, it does, uh, yeah, he does have that, uh, just his speed and power have that menace to it. Like, yeah, Pantera makes sense. So yeah, I, that's, it's, it's all, Pantera's cool. Yes. So let's move away from, uh, let's face it. When you call someone Lou Bob, that sounds so redneck. And last I checked, geography-wise, we are not in the South. And I don't know why you would give someone a redneck nickname, but Lou Bob sounds completely redneck. And there's yeah. nothing redneck about White Sox fans. As a Jim, you know, would occasionally get called Jim Bob. It just, I think it's just <laughs> satisfying for people to say, like, throw a Bob at the end of a name. And I guess it's satisfying to do, but yeah. Jim Bob Margulis. Big Jimmy Bob Margulis. Yep. All right, let's see if that nickname sticks. Big Jim Bob Margulis. I don't think it's got legs, Jim, but we'll see. But anyways, great question, William. Thank you so much for asking it. Our next question comes from Ryan, and Ryan is asking, I heard they took the in-game video room away from players, and I'm interested in how they used it before this rule change and what impact it will have going forward. I, as far as I know, I looked it up uh, in, in just to find stories on it. It doesn't seem like they have taken it away yet. They're talking about it. Um, they're considering it's something they can do before opening day. 
and they're just, uh, you know, just trying to evaluate it and it's being batted around. And so you're having people talk about it. Uh, JD Martinez has been, I think the most, um, he, he's made the, the strongest case for it, uh, or at least, you know, um, the idea of taking the video room away from him uh, upsets him. And, you know, perhaps that's not something the Red Sox should be complaining about given, you know, where they are and uh, what exactly we're trying to find out about their, their own little cheating scandal going on. But, you know, his, his attitude is like that video is a big part of the way he prepares. And it's the way he makes adjustments and him being, you know, most of the time DH it's the way he keeps himself busy in between at bats. And if you do that, if you take it away from him, it's taking, you know, a big part of his player identity away from him. And I can kind of get that. And I can kind of seeing that being not uh, a, a solely held opinion just because um, when you, when you look at all the, you know, swing changes being made and all these labs, uh, these labs being a bigger part of the discussion, having more like lab created players, or at least a uh, lab altered players. Uh, I can see this being a bigger concern down the line, but you know, for me, somebody who, you know, just enjoys watching the game and, and thinks that the game is largely, you know, in line with its historical sense, even if a lot of things have changed about it, like the shape of the game, the shape of the box score, um, you know, shape of the field, everything still resembles what it resembled 50 years ago. It doesn't seem like it's that uh, integral to the experience to where it needs to happen or, or that these claims should be taken that seriously. I guess, you know, we'll find out maybe, you know, going back to James Fegan, maybe he's the guy to talk to hitters about that, you know, asking him them, you know, how they use video to prepare and, you know, whether this is going to be a bigger deal in between innings, you know, maybe with Edwin Encarnacion coming in and him being a most of the time DH, maybe he uses that. I haven't heard of any White Sox hitters really relying on it that much. And given the way they've hit the last few years, maybe they should. Uh, yeah, maybe that's not the best case for them. Um, but I'm inclined to say, like, no, just close it down. You know, it's, it caused more trouble than it helps, at least for a year. Uh, I guess my one concern is that it could tilt, you know, it, maybe it tilts things further towards the pitchers. Maybe it leads to the strikeout problem Major League Baseball is also trying to combat. Maybe it uh, contributes, you know, just more or fewer balls in play, less action especially later in innings when relievers are coming in and people are trying to do quick studies about them. Maybe that's a case where it doesn't help the game be more watchable, but I think for the time being, I wouldn't mind taking it away and just seeing what happens. Ryan, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Paul Riker and Paul is asking which of the contracts will the White Sox regret the most? Well, I'm not sure if he means contracts in terms of contract extensions or like free agent contracts. Does he think he means all or, or should we talk about all? Let's say all. Okay. Let's all, I all. think, I think uh, Dallas Keuchel is probably the one the White Sox could regret the most just in terms of dollars spent and how much they're counting on him to be a big part of things. Like if he's an ordinary like say if, you know John Shields or James Shields or John Danks, if if that happens to him to where just all of a sudden his stuff falls off because he's already flirting, you know, as somebody who throws a high eighty sinkers, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for him to to lose before stuff becomes more hittable. But let's say that happens and he you know hits uh you know like he kind of falls down and hits the bottom of the rotation. I don't think he falls out of it, but he's probably like a fifth starter, and you just hope he's. Uh, a little bit better in replacement level. We've seen the White Sox have difficulties overcoming, uh, you know, that 
that rotation spot and that kind of investment going belly up, and so that would concern me. But I think uh, maybe my number two or tied for number one will be Jose Abreu, and it's a little bit tough to... Uh, it's going to be a fascinating thing to discuss just over the years, I think, because I think Abreu, him coming back on a three-year, $50 million deal, probably you know, maybe guaranteeing him $20 million more than he would get on open markets from other teams. I think other teams might go for like maybe two for 32 or something like that. Uh, not three for 50. I don't think there'd be a team giving him that. So it's a costly investment, but I can see like if bringing him back inspire a lot of good vibes for like Luis Roberts sign his, his extension and Yohan Makata sign his and just be like a great place to uh, set down some roots then I can see, okay, transfer some of that money over from Abreu to what Makanda should be making, and then it feels like it's a bit better. So I can see it being the case, and it's not so much a matter of dollars. I think it's just with Abreu, just his um, you know, his right-handed bats struggling against right-handed pitching last year. Um, you know, the power production was there, but there was the juice ball. So say if they you know take some of the deflate the ball a little bit to you know use that word, and uh, you know bring home runs back in line with their historical norms. Uh, then I could see him being like less special, maybe even being, you know, by the middle of his second year, being a bit of a liability against righties. And we, you know, we've seen the White Sox wrestle with this before when it comes to, you know, um, trusted veterans struggling. Uh, the White Sox really don't deal with that well. So I can see that being the case where, you know, committing to a Bray while it feels good and, and nobody feels bad about it, nobody regrets it, has some benefits beyond having a Bray's bat. I can see it causing a problem just where, like, if, you know, the same player, uh, you know, or, like, say they signed, like, say, Edwin Encarnacion to fill the Abreu role. And then that was just, like, their right-handed first baseman. They signed him for 1 for 12 instead of, you know, 3 for 50. You know, if Encarnacion has the kind of year where I think he, you know, he might have, where it's just some homers but not a lot of production around it that makes you feel great about having him in the middle of the order... You can, you can get away from uh, uh, Encarnacion. You can reduce his bats, have him more against lefties. You can knock him down in the order. You can you know, rotate him in and out of the lineup, and nobody feels that bad about it. I think with Abreu, like by the second year, if he tails off the way his split suggests could happen, I hope it doesn't, but it could happen, I could see the White Sox wrestling with how to handle that, and I could see that getting in the way of them trying to be ascendant. So I think that might be the case, uh, the contract they stumble over. More than Keuchel, who even if he struggles, they they have five rotation spots to fill, and I think he'll be good enough to fill one of them. I thought you were going to take the easy route and say Kelvin Herrera. No, that was was last year, though. I like your explanations. (laughs) I think they already regret that. (laughs) It's not a matter of uh, future tense. Uh, What do you think? Do you you agree with that, or do you think... Would you extend that to extensions and think they might regret one of those? I don't think they're going to regret any of the contract extensions. I, I don't. And I'm being very bullish on Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, and Yohan Makata. I'm very high on them. And, you know, for those that have been listening to us the last couple of years, I know you and I get nailed on being too pessimistic. But those three are legit stars. I don't want to worry my time thinking about the outfield logjam that we talked about in years past or 40-grade prospects that... Maybe they could be major leaguers. You know, I, I'm beyond that conversation now, especially after what's happened this offseason. It's kind of rejuvenated me. I agree with you on the Dallas Keuchel, that there could be the opportunity where you're looking at that deal, especially two years from now, and wonder, man, we're paying Dallas Keuchel a lot of money to be the fifth starter. You know? Yeah. Um, 
that that's where I that's where I'm with you because again I. I, I think Ronaldo Lopez can bounce back, and I think working with Yasmani Grandel is going to work wonders for him. We're already starting to see some of the benefits of the adjustments that Dylan Cease has made, and if those carry over to the regular season, and all of a sudden he's a very dependable starting pitcher that could be the number three for the White Sox, and a Michael Kopech with his new mental approach to the game, and physically he is back to what he was in 2018, I mean, the White Sox, boom, you have your homegrown one through four starters, and then you're paying $18 million to Dallas Keuchel to be your number five and probably not pitch in the postseason if you get that far because you have better starting pitchers whose salaries may be combined if you go into arbitration with Kopech, Cease, and Lopez is still below what you're paying Dallas Keuchel. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... It's not well allotted money as far as the accounting, but it's the it's what you had to offer and sign him at in order to have Dallas Keuchel pitch for you in 2020. And this is the risk that every team plays in free agency. And it's going to be the same questions that the Toronto Blue Jays are going to be asking themselves about Hinjin Ryu and the Arizona Diamondbacks with Madison Baumgartner, signing him to the deal that they did. And even in Philadelphia, with Zach Wheeler, even though the White Sox really wanted Zach Wheeler, the Phillies are going to have to ask themselves in three to four years, is he still worth this top-end money uh, to be our number two behind Aaron Nola? Yeah, uh, and um, it's kind of uh, interesting that neither of us said Yasmani Grandal, just given that he signed for the most money and he's in his 30s as a catcher. Yeah, there there are the ingredients for the White Sox to regret that. I just ruled that one out just because nobody said a bad thing about the signing. Like, nobody... Uh, inside the organization or like, you know, within the organization's uh, sphere, like us and, you know, reporters, analysts, nobody, you know, no impartial analysts, like, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, Saris, Mike Petriello and so forth, like those guys, you know, Dan Samborski all loved it. And like, you just, nobody has said a bad thing about it. You have the typical free agent thing where they, the last year might be a bit of a mess, but the value from the first three years, uh, you know, should be enough to cover for it. But should it go belly up the way some of the White Sox other free agent acquisitions have? I don't think they can say they regret it. I think it just made too much sense for them not to do it. It's just a matter of the White Sox just having horrible luck with uh, all their free agent acquisitions being smallpox blankets. Well, I almost died a cardiac arrest when the news came out about the Yasmani Grandel sighting. So I was not going to consider that at all, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> as far as regret. Uh <laughs> But yeah, so I guess mine, my Paul, I'm I'm with Jim. It's Dallas Keuchel. I think that's the deal that the White Sox could regret the most. But obviously, you know, being positive, I don't think the White Sox will regret any of the deals that they have made. And even if Dallas Keuchel is a number five starter a couple of years from now, if Dallas Keuchel is your number five starter, you are doing well for a Major League Baseball team, uh, especially with their starting rotation. Uh, So hopefully that does come to fruition because that means the homegrown pitchers have met the ceilings or performed at the level that we all hope that they would when the White Sox have acquired them in trades. But Paul, thank you so much for your question. Terrific question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter we're at Sox Machine. We're just shy of 6,000 followers. So if you are on Twitter and you don't follow us right now, please follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you can help support the site 
and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash socks machine. I know that I missed out uh, for those that have been tracking the major league baseball draft with me. I'll have an update last week. I took the week off, obviously being on vacation. I will have updates on the major league baseball draft tracking this upcoming Wednesday to recap all the outstanding performances, especially from the college starting pitching standpoint uh, for this upcoming week's Patreon post. So if you want to be more interested in the major league baseball draft, or you want extra content from us, as far as Jim's writings and extra content and ad free podcasts, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today. And uh, also a warning to come full circle, Jim, I forgot I will be in San Francisco and San Diego in May for the white Sox against giants and white Sox against Padres series. So Louisville, San Francisco, San Diego, Montreal, you are now on notice. A lot of good cities. It's a shame. A lot of good cities. It is really, it's really a shame. Wash your hands, folks. Keep washing those hands. And uh, hopefully nobody gets sick, especially any of our listeners. But that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply.